It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. Asheville faces a number of seemingly intractable challenges, from homelessness and affordable housing to addiction and public safety, and a lot of the general public's finger-pointing is directed at Mayor Esther Manheimer. I wish there was an answer that was this big global fix. Now that I've learned all this information, I have the steps 1 through 10 to solve this entire problem holistically. And the answer is I don't, and I don't think anybody does. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. Today is the second part of my conversation with the city's mayor. If you missed the first part, be sure to scroll back a notch on your podcast app to give it a listen. Today, Esther Manheimer addresses her take and the city's approaches to a number of big challenges. We also talk about Asheville's formal commitment to reparations and where the city is in its assessment of the water outages Asheville experienced last December. The Overlook is going live, and you can be part of our very first live podcasting event. I'll record conversations with Asheville Symphony Orchestra music director Darko Buderitz and the local old-time Americana duo The Resonant Rogues, along with a special guest to be named later. The Overlook Live happens Wednesday, September 27th at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. Tickets will go fast once they're on sale to the general public, but anyone joining my Patreon campaign through June gets in free. Go to patreon.com slash the Overlook Podcast to support the show now and secure your ticket for the Overlook Live. In a city survey of more than 2,000 Asheville residents, people said Asheville should center its next budget on public safety, emergency response, affordable housing, and homelessness. I began this part of my conversation with Mayor Esther Manheimer by asking how the city is approaching these issues and where the money will come from to support any strategies. 
the city is growing. So property tax revenues, sales tax revenues are growing. Those are the two primary revenue sources for cities in North Carolina, that being property taxes and sales tax revenue. Although a majority of the sales tax revenue goes to the state to balance the state budget. And I do get this question all the time, especially from people who have moved here say in the last 20 years, why can't we get the room tax? Why can't we have a food and beverage tax? Why can't we add on a local sales tax? And so everybody can go Google all that about how that works in North Carolina, but just we can't. We as a city council cannot just decide we're going to impose those taxes all by ourselves. That doesn't, it doesn't work like that in North Carolina. So we do, we have this restraint in terms of what we can work with. Your next one was emergency response. Around public safety. So this council is very focused on ramping up and emphasizing public safety. Although we're seeing our numbers in different crime categories go down, our category of aggravated assaults has shot up. And so that is making our overall crime rate go up. We have crime throughout the city that we need to always focus on. We need to make sure we don't forget communities that our police department's working hard to make sure are safe. But we also are seeing downtown become a place where people are voicing that they don't feel safe, whether they work there, whether they live there, whether they're visiting there. So the police department has started an initiative to focus on downtown safety along with the sheriff's department. But also in this budget, what you're going to see is increased spending on public safety. So it's probably the largest increase to our police department, and I don't know how many years, but it's a significant increase. And that came after, remember, we went back and we talked about what does the mayor do and what are the things that aren't in the job description, but you do. That involves having those sit down discussions with the police chief, with the police benevolent association that represents police officers, and finding out. What is it going to take to support your department to be able to help you rebuild your ranks? So we think we've included a lot of that in the budget. I know a lot of people will say it's not enough. And I agree, it's not enough. But we have taken a significant step forward, and I hope we can do more. But we talked about this financial constraint, and that is a real one. We're trying to be creative, figuring out every different way to address this sort of I don't want to call it a new normal, but it's a complex challenge that we're seeing right now in our city. I get the sense from leaders in our city, nonprofit leaders, social service nonprofits, others that deal with the homeless, with addiction, general vagrancy. We're seeing levels of these problems that we have not seen before. And I'm getting a sense right now that we're in a what can we do moment where there's this overhanging question and not too many answers yet. Or do you think that's a fair way of categorizing it? Here's what I think it is. We do have complex problems. They have evolved very quickly and they're presenting major challenges for us. We have people that are doing drugs that are making them psychotic like meth and trank. And on top of that, we already had an opioid epidemic. We have fentanyl overdoses in our community. We have one of the highest per capita overdose rates in the state. So we know that this was already a challenge. But if you look at the numbers just in the last year or two, it has taken off and is you can see it. You can see it when you're out there in our community. So here's the challenge I see. 
You have a system or systems in North Carolina that have been created for however long, many years to try to address issues, whether it's mental health or drug addiction or homelessness or housing. And there's all these different entities and departments. Some of them are governmental. Some of them are nonprofit. Some of them are faith-based, all these different providers. You have a state that went totally to a system. I don't even fully understand it around mental health where they are, you have private providers and nonprofit providers. It's a patchwork is what I'm describing to you. And all of a sudden this established patchwork is supposed to collaborate and coordinate to address this complex problem. So you might have an individual that has dealing with drug addiction or mental health also needs housing, whatever the case may be, but you've got all these different providers that say, I do mental health or I do substance abuse or, and you have a city We don't even own and operate a single homeless shelter. We don't own and operate any substance abuse provider. We don't own and operate anything having to do um, mental health. Those are all other providers. Yet, I think a lot of people look and say, you're the mayor, you're the city council. It's happening right here in our city. Why aren't you fixing this problem? So that's a valid question in terms of who do you see in front of you? That's where it looks like the buck stops to me. So that is the challenge we have is trying to figure out how to get all these providers to get coordinated. And that's what the national Alliance and homelessness. Number one recommendation was communities that are more successful at addressing the, this crisis have coordinated groups that are working together to address the problem. We didn't create this system, but it is what it is. And it is very difficult to navigate. And it's ever evolving. So you have law enforcement, which handles things a certain way, has its own culture and is trying to evolve even within itself on how to handle this. You have these nonprofits. And I heard, I read a story in AVL Watchdog that talked to the director of AHOPE. And the director was saying, we're seeing a kind of addiction that we have not seen before. And we don't, I thought that was the most telling quote I've seen in this whole thing. When you have the director of an agency who's tasked with working with these people every day, who's saying, this is something we have not seen before. And we're trying to find answers here. Even within these own centers, they're having to figure things out. And then when you're trying to form coalitions among these, how does that happen? Certainly not quickly. So again, back to that job of the mayor that's not in the job description. I have spent so much time meeting with the directors of shelter facilities. I've toured almost every homeless facility in this city and county in the last several months because I'm working on a shelter committee that's a subcommittee of our Homeless Initiative Advisory Committee. And I have talked to shelter operators in other cities. I have sat down with Mayhek doctors so I can understand substance use and what they're seeing on the streets. I've toured the jail and looked at their MAT program, which is a medical assistance treatment for people who are experiencing substance use. I've met with mental health providers. I've toured the BHUC facility, which is the county's operated mental health facility. Add to that, I also tried to travel to other cities that are having similar experiences to us and see how they're dealing with it. So you can get little nuggets of pockets of, okay, Raleigh's got this great program for people who are homeless and experiencing drug addiction. We don't have that exact concept here. Maybe we should replicate it. In some ways, it's fantastic to get educated and learn and talk to all these people that are doing their job and providing their services. But in another, it is so incredibly daunting and overwhelming to understand 
This system is complicated. It is big. It is multifaceted. It has federal HUD funding over here. It has state mental health funding over here. If you were to sit down today and say, design me a system that can deal with the worst crisis with drug addiction like we've never seen before, that is literally making people insane on the streets of downtown Asheville, they would not design the system we have now. They wouldn't even come close to that because it's so unmanageable. More after this. When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City Soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. You've had samples of how all of it works. You've toured around all these facilities. You've gotten a sense of the deep work they're doing from law enforcement to on the ground with addicts and shelters. What's our city's next move? I wish there was an answer that was this big global fix. Now that I've learned all this information, I have the steps one through 10 to solve this entire problem holistically. And the answer is I don't, and I don't think anybody does. I think within each area that we are in need of, there are new and innovative ways to do it that we probably need to embrace. And some of it we're already doing and we're trying. And when I say we, I am talking about the collective collaborative we, because the city, as we already talked about, doesn't directly provide a lot of these services. And sitting in my seat, I, of course, get a lot of communication from people in the community that have their thoughts and feelings about how this should be done. Some people say, drive everybody out. Just they need to go to another town and have whatever their issues are, send them someplace else. And then I have people who say, where's your compassion? Why aren't embracing everyone where they are and helping meet their acute needs? Yeah. Where do you sit on that? Because there are people who say, I mentioned A-Hope and the beloved Asheville, and some people vilify them as saying they're part of the problem because they're right there. They're so accessible to people and they're enabling. That's a word I've heard from some people that those kinds of Nonprofits, well-meaning as they are, they enable the continued degradation of downtown. What do you say in response to people who might say that? To me, I'm just going to tell you, engaging in that sort of tit for tat. I don't want to frame it as a tit for tat. I think there are people who are very legitimately alarmed at what they're seeing in downtown. And just like you and everybody else, like we're seeing things we have not seen before. The mayor is among the people that are looked to as do something about this. And there are people saying, why 
if we see even the leader of A-Hope as candid as she was, saying, we don't know what we're, what's happening here. And then people point fingers at beloved Asheville. People are looking at people or sources to blame. I'm just saying, how do you respond yeah, to those yeah. people who look at them as easy targets? I think the only thing we can do is find where we have consensus. I think what I hear what you're saying is there are people in the community that say, look, if we provide these services or we allow people to provide these services, then we're just going to generate more, more bad problems here in our city because we'll attract people. They'll come travel here and because we'll be on the, on the map in terms of providing these services. And on the other hand, if we just provide no services at all, and this isn't a haven for anything, that'll solve all our problems. That's one argument. I think that's a narrative that some people put together. Sure. And I think all the way on the opposite end of that spectrum is we should provide every service in our community. We should have shelters and housing and we should have... We should be a model for compassion. Model for compassion, mental health, drug addiction, needle exchange, you name it. We should have it all. I will say that Asheville is pretty divided on, for at least, I don't know for what you think, but at least where I'm sitting, I'm not certain on when we get into that discussion, whether there's strong consensus. I think what there is consensus around is that we don't want to have houseless people on our streets. We don't want to have people using drugs outside, leaving needles around in our community. We don't want people to go untreated who are suffering from mental health and experiencing their mental health crisis right here in our city. There is consensus around what makes a nice city and what doesn't make a nice city. And so I agree with that. I live in North Asheville, but I come downtown every day to go to work. I see it and it hurts my heart to see how the city's changed. I also think there's a very real problem in that if we erode what is our downtown, we can suffer from it on a very practical level economically. If people choose to close their businesses or not have their business downtown and have employees downtown, there's all kinds of repercussions of letting your downtown fade as a gem it should be. And you must be seeing that happening in real time in some sense with downtown. Absolutely. And I'm also seeing the effects of when we really focus on our downtown in terms of cleanliness and safety, I can see how that can be a positive change too. However, it's not getting at a root cause, right? If you get your police department and your fire department and you get your public works department to clean and keep a place safe and move people along and don't let them sit around in your downtown and do drugs or whatever they're doing, yes, that is positive, but you're not you're not addressing a root cause. And I think that is where we are so challenged. We are so challenged as a country. How as a country are we letting so many people fall through the cracks like this and it becomes our problem as a city, whether you're Duluth, Minnesota or you're Bend, Oregon or you're Asheville, North Carolina, what is happening here? We're at the end of the line. There should have been safety nets and other ways to divert people before they get to this point. And I know this because... This year I participated in the point in time count and I crawled under bridges and I talked to people and I asked them about their lives and where they came from and really like, how did this happen? How did you end up in this situation? Yeah. What did you hear? You hear just what you can possibly imagine. You hear I was in the foster care system and I aged out and I was in upstate South Carolina and I met somebody here in Asheville and I, so I decided to come here. I met a guy who was living in a tent and he was in his sixties 
he'd been living in Buncombe County for several years, squatting in a house that had no power and no water. And somebody figured it out and kicked him out. And so now he was in a tent. I talked to a guy that had been, he fell into homelessness in Shelby, North Carolina. And I said, why'd you pick Asheville? The, probably the nearest city with any kind of resources would have been Charlotte. And he said, I met, I had a friend here and you hear that a lot. I had a friend here. And so I came to Asheville. So it wasn't like I was put on a bus with 20 other people and we were all brought to Asheville. No, it's a much more real story. Like somebody just, they eventually had their final slip and they ended up houseless. And I think some people say, oh, they bust them here. <laughs> I right. see that, which is ridiculous. There are two other subjects I want to bring up and see where we're at with things. One is reparations. Are you happy or satisfied with the pace? I know you committed as a city council. We, we were one of the first cities in the country to commit to a city mandated reparations without naming exactly what that was. We have a reparations committee that's been working hard on this, about 25 members. I interviewed Rob Thomas of the Racial Justice Coalition around this. What are your thoughts and feelings about where we're at and what will eventually manifest in terms of reparations? Okay, back to the it's your job, but not in your job description as mayor. So when we first embarked on this, I took it upon myself to learn a lot about this. I have participated in conferences where you have scholars talking about what does reparations mean. I've done other conferences where there's other elected officials from different places in the country that are trying to embark on this as well, whether it's at a local or state level. And I also studied Evanston, Illinois, which is the first city to really meaningfully try to embark on a reparations effort and put in place a program once their commission concluded its work. So I tried to study what all those things look like. I'm really excited that Asheville is doing this. I think for a lot of people that hear this word reparations, and it can be polarizing, can really draw a lot out in people. But what I would tell people is that Asheville, like many cities, had a program of urban renewal where the federal government gave the city all this money to take people's property and widen roads and build facilities. And in Asheville, that meant taking the homes of many mostly black families and moving them to public housing, where we have now generations living in public housing. And this was wrong what we did to people. To me, reparations is like a big lawsuit for damages to these families who were displaced and their generational wealth, that being a home, which is most people's only opportunity at generational wealth. We took it away and we put them in public housing and said, here's your new home. You don't get to own it. And you can die here, but then you won't own anything. And maybe the next generation lives here. And we created these concentrated pockets of poverty that have all kinds of negative effects. We know there's correlations between lesser academic outcomes, higher crime rates, increased poverty, where you create these pockets of poverty. And that's on us. We did this to our own neighbors. And to me, this is an attempt to right this wrong that can never be righted. And to me, it's as a lawyer, especially, it is clear to me that it's an overdue, it's an overdue opportunity to make a payment for the damages caused to these families who were, they were compensated to some extent for this involuntary taking of their property, but it was nothing compared to imagine if they still owned those homes in those places here in Asheville with the property values we have today. And let's be clear too, that there's ripple effects from this eminent domain that was take this property taken many decades ago to the problems we've just been talking about. Absolutely. You can draw a straight line. 
So I think where this conversation gets off kilter is you'll hear people say, I didn't have a slave, you know what? And that's not the point. I mean, for a city to engage in a meaningful reparations process, to me, it's tied to urban renewal because that was directly the harm that cities caused our mostly black communities. If you're the federal government and you're Congress, yes, you should be looking at reparations that address slavery, other issues that you had a direct place in. If you're the state, maybe you look at education and segregation because that was where you had, you being the state, had a direct impact. But for cities, to me, we're talking about urban renewal. I recognize that the Reparations Commission is talking about all kinds of topics, and I think that is how it should be done. And that's a very important process. I'm the liaison to the Reparations Commission, and I'm I'm blown away by the work that they're doing and, and in-depth on each of the different topics they're exploring. How do you see this, or do you see a timeline for an actual manifestation of any of this? We do have a timeline, and we've adopted this timeline. But I, if they need more time, uh, that's fine to say to do to be one of the first city in North Carolina to take on reparations and to hold ourselves to a specific timeline. Uh, that's bold, <laughs> but, and then if, it, I know we've already gotten some criticism around the process, but I don't know how you can say that because nobody knows how, how this is supposed to work. Exactly. We are making this plane on the runway. You mentioned to me that the legislature is watching how municipalities are operating and you think eyes are on the Asheville City Council in terms of how it conducts its business. Why do you think that's happening and what are the repercussions yeah. of that? Why, do, why is the legislature caring how you're conducting business? Part of the job is to maintain communications with other elected leaders, whether they're in the legislature or in co our congressmen, whoever it might be. And I've been doing this job long enough that I know these folks and they feel comfortable letting me know if they are, if there's something we're doing in Asheville that has their eye, if they're concerned about it. So there have been times where someone at the legislature or through somebody else will reach out to me and say, Hey, we see you're doing whatever it is, whatever initiative we're working on. And we, what's that about? We want to know more about that. We're concerned about it. And since the Republicans have controlled the legislature since 2000 and 10, we have been under a constant threat. It was very severe in the beginning, and it's less now. But still, they remind us every once in a while that they are paying close attention to what we're doing. And that it could have repercussions, whether it's whether it's not passing legislation that we need, or it could be worse, which would be legislation that we haven't asked for at all that harms us. But we've been We've had a truce, I hope, for a period of time now. But no, we don't operate in a vacuum. And I think I think folks sometimes think that or they realize we don't and they don't care, which is a luxury not to care, because in a mother may I state or a Dylan rule state, it does matter. And lastly, I want to talk about the water crisis. I know that you had a report commissioned and there were some recommendations that came out of that. What are some things that came out of there that you see as actionable for the city that will make a difference? So there's two things that have happened. One, our water staff internally has created an after action report that I think is 74 pages or something. It has many recommendations. But the thing that the council has directed is the creation of a task force that's still doing its work. 
and it will come out with a report. The last I heard, it was supposed to be end of this month, but I think they might need a little bit more time into June. I can't remember. But that report is what we haven't seen yet. And they will have their assessment of the water crisis and recommendations. And to me, I'm very glad that the council took the step of creating an independent task force, even if we're not going to, it's not going to be flattering. I'm anticipating. I can't imagine why it would be. So to me, the water crisis was a serious failing of a very basic service that cities should be able to provide their residents and their businesses that are in their community. Yes, you're going to have water outages now, and then you'll have a line break here and there. We have a very old system, and we constantly are improving it through a capital maintenance program that you could do forever. But to me, to have a water outage this large and for this long is absolutely unacceptable. And I'm hopeful that this task force will help us either confirm what the staff has believes to be the causes of the outage and then what their recommendations are, hopefully looking at we are what we already have planned for improvements to the system, whether that's enough or there needs to be more. I want to thank Asheville Mayor Esther Manheimer for taking part in this conversation with The Overlook. Remember, if you missed the first part of this conversation, just go back a notch in your podcasting app to give it a listen. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter at podavl.com. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash The Overlook Podcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast.